0: Our text, Psalm 148, it's the third of the final five psalms of praise which bring the whole Psalter to this crescendo. It's concluding doxology in the famous Psalm 150. But our text is 148, Psalm 148. So high was John Milton's estimate of this text that he, po- in Paradise Lost," he poetically reimagines the text as being sung by Adam and Eve in Eden, in their state of innocency, before the fall. And as lovely as that is, this is very much a text for the people of God outside of Eden and on the way to the new creation. You probably noted as it was read, the vast bulk of the text consists in imperatives, in commands or summonses to praise. There are nine explicit calls to worship in Psalm 148. But the the command is implied on virtually every line of the text. In fact, In the text, the summonses to praise vastly outweigh the reasons for the praise or the content of the praise. Often, like in Psalm 145, which we looked at last week, you'll get a summons to praise and then you'll get a reason. For the Lord is good and gracious and bountiful. Here, it's a summons and a summons and a summons and a summons. It's as if the psalmist is reminding us by sheer repetition that the Psalter is given to aid us in what is our very purpose as creatures. What is a calling that we can't escape as creatures, and that's to joyfully glorify God. So the text initiates, think of it this way, the text initiates, and we and the whole realm of being, as we'll see, are being recruited by the text to echo back the strains The joyous strains. And so the whole of Psalm 148 can be seen as a response, a hymn of response to the creation narrative, which was read from Genesis 1, which is why that's the Old Testament text with this psalm. So we'll make two points from the heavens in verses 1 through 6 and from the earth. 7 through 14, there's an outline on the back inside page of the bulletin. So, first then, from the heavens. Psalm 148, verse 1. Praise the Lord from the heavens. It's the Lord himself throughout the poem, who's the object, the one, to whom praise is ascribed. It's a simple enough point. The created order is is filled with many glorious wonders and mysteries, but the difference between the creation and the creature is basic to this psalm. The difference between the creator and the creature is basic. It can never be transgressed. He is not simply an extension of creaturely things or creaturely things to to the highest magnitude. God is a being of a different order. So, all his works, we'll see, praise him. And while we praise him for his works, right? we praise him and not the works. Paul tells us in Romans, all things are from him and through him and unto him. And that means our duty and our joy as creatures is to praise this one because he's the source of your being. He's the source of your continuous preservation, and he's your destiny. So the text then summons, first and foremost, the heavens, the heights above, to praise him. This is the realm, and you can see this in verse 2, in which the angels and the heavenly host dwell. So the psalmist starts here. He starts with the whole army of heavenly beings. The choir before and around the throne summons them. Notice the inclusivity here. All his angels, all his heavenly hosts. We saw this last week as well. This all is repeated nine times in the text. There's no exceptions. Nobody gets an exemption from the summons to praise. No creature. And the text moves from the highest heavens to what we might call the visible heavens in verse 3. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. It's a summons to the heavenly lights, given, as Genesis told us, for signs and for seasons. The sun rules the day. The moon rules the night. He also made the stars. Genesis puts it that way, sort of an afterthought. He also made the stars. All, every celestial light, is to perpetually praise the Lord. This is important for a number of reasons, but a simple one is this, that in the ancient world, and to some extent still in the modern world, people are tempted to worship the sun and moon and stars. To divine the future by them. And that kind of idolatry is completely overthrown in the biblical vision of this text. And here you can think of a text like this as kind of rigorously enforcing the first commandment and the second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, and nor shall you worship any image of anything in the created order. Psalm 148 is not only a hymn of response to Genesis 1, it's a kind of perpetual enforcement of the first and second commandments. Praise Him, verse 4 says, Verse 4, praise him, you highest heavens, which is a poetic term probably for heaven itself, and you waters above the skies, a reference to the rain clouds in Genesis 1. So everything in the at, what we might call the atmospheric heavens, everything in the cosmic heavens, and everything in heaven itself is summoned to praise God. Heaven is full of wonders and mysteries. There isn't just one heaven. There's the atmospheric heavens of the clouds and the weather. There's the cosmic heavens of the stars and the moons and the galaxies. And there's the throne room heaven of God itself. And this psalm addresses all of those realms. And verse 5 opens with, Let them praise the name of the Lord. To praise the Lord is to praise his name, and as we've seen, his name is his godness. God is his name. The whole created order, the book of Romans tells us in the first chapter, displays this name. This name is not hidden. The creation is a theater, Calvin says, a theater of his glory. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. That's three ways of speaking of his name. They're clearly revealed, plainly set forth in the things that are made. And so we have this revelation of God's name in creation. And that in itself is a kind of summons to us. It leaves creatures without an excuse if they worship the creature rather than the creator. So, the whole realm of heavenly beings is to praise the name which they themselves reveal. They're to praise the name which they themselves are revelations of. And they're to do so, the text says, because at his command they were created. By the the sovereign word of God, free, powerful, good, and commanding, the whole heavenly house came to be. This is a basic Christian doctrine. I'm sure we believe it. The creation, then, is worded. It's the product of divine speech. This is very important, I think. It means that the very existence of the created order makes it a duty to return praise. To speak back in praise, even as you were spoken forth into being and existence. God not only created the heavenly realms, but verse 6 says, He established them forever and ever. He issues a decree that shall not pass away. So it's not just that God created everything, but He preserves everything. He maintains everything. Here the idea is He assigns everything a place or a purpose. He bounds things. Now, there is perhaps a question that might arise here. We can understand that the angels, being intelligent creatures, you know, they could respond to this summons with something like vocal praise. But what about the inanimate sun and the moon and the stars? You know, we sang St. Francis' famous hymn, All Creatures of Our God and King, and that's a, a hymn which calls out to the inanimate creation, right, the fire and the water and the sun and the moon. I mean, clearly their obedience is something which the law of God has prescribed upon their, their being and, and written into their actions. And it's being personified here as praise. The, these things, They're doing, the inanimate creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, doing what the Creator gives them to do, that is homage. That is praise. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of His hands. And so the psalm then is, in summoning these inanimate creatures, it's doing something, and Augustine pointed this out long ago, it's something like you might do if you came across someone doing their job well. You would say, good job, keep it up, praise the Lord. In the very nature of the case, if we were all to be silent, the creation is filled with creatures who are perpetually, by the law of their being, praising God. So, the second point here is from the earth. Verse 7, praise the Lord from the earth. So, the psalm here has our praise, the praise of creatures, human creatures and animals and the like, Ascending up to sort of join this celestial heavenly choir. Praise the Lord you sea creatures. And all ocean depths. Even the dynamic weather patterns. Are called to join in. For God is the Lord of the storm. Lightning the text says. Hail, snow, clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. Praise God for the weather. God, God's state, Milton said, is kingly. Thousands at his bidding speed. And again, you can see here in the text that it's by their very being. They're existing. They're filling their assigned place. Much like Genesis puts everything in its assigned place. That's how they praise the Lord. Verse 9, mountains and hills and high peaks, humble rolling hills, fruit trees, and cedars, wild and domesticated animals, birds and insects, both of which have a sort of intricacy about them, which display God's wisdom. They're all summoned. And then finally, the poet, he gets to the crown of creation, to human creatures in verse 11. Now, before we look at this, I want to reiterate and enlarge on something I said a few minutes ago. Uh, to, To be a creature, I don't want to skip over this, is what I'm saying. To be a creature is to be summoned to praise. And to be a human creature, in the image of God, endowed with freedom, and to fail to worship is to be worse than the beasts and the insects. It's to be worse than the rocks. They at least fill their assigned place. Right? To fail to respond to this summons. To fail, and that means to fail to bless and to laud and to praise and to adore and to magnify God the Creator, to love Him with the totality of one's heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all of one's being, to fail to do that is an inexcusable and treacherous act. Right? It's blasphemous ingratitude. It's a perpetual violation of the first and the second commandment. It's a kind of criminal muteness. And for human beings, it's a treasonous denial of our vocation as human creatures. The reason I I am stressing this is that where this is obscured, our sense of human depravity will inevitably be weakened. You know, maybe all that stuff about sin and all that reform stuff about human corruption is just overwrought. After all, Billy seems like a nice guy. I mean, really, maybe we're overdoing this. Let me tell you, it's not overwrought. It's just that we fail to see it. Because we're always evaluating ourselves based on our civic obligations to other people in the second table of the law. Commandments 5 through 10. And when we do that, we say, hey, I'm not so bad, and -and so-and-so is not so bad, and people in general are not so bad. But all the time, what tends to be happening is we're ignoring the first table of the law and our comprehensive duty to God, to bless, to laud, to magnify, to love, to extol Him with the totality of our being, which is what it means to be a creature. Right? We, We ignore that. So somehow it's fine for creatures to breathe God's air, to see his light, to eat his food, to move by his secret spirit and never once lift their lips to give thanks or praise or glory to him. And we look at them and say, well, he's not such a bad guy. We're not such bad people. We just perpetually violate the first commandment and the second commandment. Right. But if you want to borrow a lawnmower, this guy's fantastic. This is a criminal distortion of the truth of the human condition. We are perpetual idolaters because as creatures, we exist under an exhaustive, joyful, free summons to gratitude. And yet we consume and consume and consume and consume and and frolic around as if we're not under that summons. It's a form of idolatry. And only the thinnest most anemic vision of God. And the summons in this text could underwrite such perpetual deception. To be a human creature is to be called always and everywhere to gratitude, to robust, fully engaged praise. And so with that, God summons in verse 11, the kings of the earth and all nations, princes and all rulers, on earth to praise Him. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Lord of nations. And thus, every human being, especially political authorities, are called to praise Him. God does not look and say, I realize that the enlightenment has come and you live in a secular nation with freedom of religion. So, Please understand, I don't expect the political authorities to worship me. I'm carving out an exemption for you guys because you're so wonderfully enlightened. (laughs) Now, of course, I, I, I do want to be understood here. I speak as a person for whom the Declaration and the Constitution are marvelous achievements. We are not in Eden, we're not in Canaan. And we're not yet in the glory of the new creation. We need to order our lives together with people of very different views from us. And it's a good thing that we seek a common order. I think freedom of religion is a very, very good thing. No one can, no one should be coerced to worship. But we should be quite clear. This summons still stands. Kings of the earth, Democrats and Republicans, all nations, secular or Islamic, all princes, including Saudi princes, all rulers, down to the local sheriff. They are summoned, always, everywhere, and perpetually and inescapably to praise this God, the Lord, the creator of all beings. Verse 12, both sexes, all ages are enlisted. Young men and women, old men and children. This is something you get better at with age. The old are, as Psalm 92 puts it, to be full of sap. Vitality to declare the Lord's glory. And if you're young, let me tell you this. One, you're not going to be young for long. eventually you'll be like me, and the next thing you know, you'll be thinking that bingo is a sport. So so I, I give you the words of the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Worship the Creator. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. So let me say a word about the scope again. The scope of the text. When you you read a text like this and you see its universal scope, it's a reminder that the church is never an insular, closed, narrow-minded society. It simply can't be. We're opened out to the totality of existence, the totality of things, the strangeness of reality, because we and all other things are creatures of our God and this King. And so what is actually going on with Psalm 148 is there's a kind of regime here, a vision, by regime I mean program, or a vision, uh, for the unification of the extreme, sprawling variety of human existence, and all of its wonder. Young men, old men, women, children, rulers, subjects, every creature, every last nation, and all of their cultural diversity. I mean, this is a problem, is it not? the balance between nationalism and internationalism, what good the Hague can do or the UN can do or this treaty can do or NATO can do. Human beings are always confronting the problem of the local and the international, the national and the international, the one and the many. Here, there's a vision for unity, for bonding the glorious diversity together, and that vision is this, God himself. It's nothing less than God himself. In this psalm, it's a joyful preoccupation with the worship of this one who made all things, who sustains all things, and who summons all things. This is the heart of the recipe for a reconciled cosmos in all of its diversity. That's how central praise is to the human vocation. In this sense, Christians are All internationalists. So, verses 13 and 14 are a summary. But they advance the argument in an important way. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. It's interesting, we praise the name of the Lord on account of the name of the Lord. And this, of course, is the first and highest form of human speech to praise this name. The name which the text says, alone, is exalted. The singular name, the unique name, the incomprehensible and incomparable name, the alone exalted name. Paul echoes this in Ephesians 1 where he says, the exalted Christ is given a name above every name that can be named either in this age or in the age to come. This is a name unrivaled in supremacy and worth. The text says his splendor is above the earth. Everything mentioned in the second half of the text. All that, his splendor is above the earth and above the heavens. Everything mentioned in the first part of the text. It's a picture of a God who infinitely transcends the glorious creation. And only praise then fits. Only praise can correspond to this exalted name. Muteness... Muteness, the failure to praise, is a kind of practical atheism. The only thing that accords with a God who is this God is to answer the summons. To speak of and to sing of and to expound the being of this God. The splendor of this light. You have have a God-centered vocation or calling or destiny, a theocentric calling. And where we, where we don't have this right, all of life is out of kilter. And then in, in verse 14, the psalm takes a maybe a surprising term. The text speaks of Israel, the people of God. He's raised up for his people a horn, the text says. And this is an image used throughout Scripture. It's associated with animal power, like animals have horns. And so it's, it's a source of dignity and strength, power, deliverance. And the dignity which God has given us, the next line says, is the praise of all his faithful servants. Praise is your horn. It's the horn or a source of power for the people of God. You are changed when you, when you praise the Lord, because you are orienting yourself to reality properly. There's a kind of internal realignment that happens. It's also a political act. Right? We declare that we don't depend on political authorities or political might when we praise this God. And so the text has moved. Notice this. It's moved from the realm of creation, the heavens, and all people on earth, to the covenant love, to the redeeming grace of God who creates a people for praise. A people, the next line says, that are near to him. We have a unique privilege here because we alone can voice or speak the unspoken praise of the whole creation. We can speak the name of the Lord who is the mystery and the truth and the glory and the joy and the destiny of the cosmos. You can take that name upon your lips. And we can do this because we've drawn near to him in Christ. And you know what Luke tells us in in his gospel? He says Christ is the horn. Same word is here. same, Same concept is here. The horn that God raised up for your salvation. So, Jesus being the horn raised up for our salvation means that through his his resurrection, his victory over death, the created order. And remember, this text is as wide as the created order. The created order is vindicated. It's set free from corruption to futility, in Paul's words. It's set, through the resurrection of Christ, the whole creation, on this path to transfigured glory. And so the praise in view here then, in this psalm, is focused, if you will, kind of concentrated in the church. That means through the church's praise, the destiny and the renewal of creation is anticipated. So please get this. Praise is not just an impulse given by the Spirit to all creatures as creatures. It is that. It's not just a summons, which is inescapable and rests upon us, and which we should gladly want to answer everywhere. It is that. But the praise of the church is an eschatological act. It's an act of the church anticipating the joy of the new creation. And it's an act of the church engaging in the task of the new creation, which is perpetual praise. Praise. It's good for us to, ha- to to go through a psalm like this because we praise God every week. We sing three hymns and we sing the doxology. We sing the Gloria Patri. But we're creatures for whom things we get murky. We forget why we're doing this stuff. Why it's important, right? It's enormously important. There's nothing more important. The worshiping church, the Israel for whom God has raised up a horn, the people near to Him, you are summoning the whole creation to praise. And praise is a foretaste of the day when the Lord, and you can see this in Psalm 96 and Psalm 98, and we anticipate this here when we praise God. There is a day, those Psalms say, when the seas and all they contain will roar, when the trees and the rivers will clap their hands. When the hills will sing for joy, the fields will exult, the heavens will be glad, and the earth will rejoice. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen.